Good morning, Mosaic Church. If we've never met, my name is Brady. And the most important thing for you to know about me is that I am an imperfect follower of Jesus. I also get to serve as one of the pastors here. I'm the pastor to the staff, uh, some of the greatest people you'll ever meet, some of the most gifted and talented people uh, I've ever met. Uh, And I'm really, really thankful to be here. I'm so thankful to be here. Uh, For some of you who've been around for a while, uh, you know that I disappeared for a few years. Uh, I was uh, up north in Quincy, Illinois, um, and um, it's really cold there. It's really cold there. Let me tell you, in four years, you can become an expert at something if you try really hard, right? If you work really hard, if you focus your heart and your mind towards something, in four years, you can become an expert. I mean, think about all the things that you learn in high school, right? You learn a lot in high school. You grow and you change and shape in high school. And you think about the difference between a college freshman and a high school freshman. That's a lot. That's four years. College, that's four years for some of us. For me, it was four and a half, so I'm in that crowd that it's not. Some of it's five, six. Some of us, it's eternal. It's just dot, dot, dot. We're just lifelong learners. I get that. But if you work really hard and you focus in, you can develop a pretty high level of competence in something. And let me tell you, in the last four years in Quincy, Illinois, I've become unbelievably competent at staying alive in the frigid cold weather. I, you you probably don't know this about me, but I don't have great blood circulation. Uh, My extremities get really cold. And, and when you're like that, you need to figure out how to survive because Quincy is the place, have you ever heard your parents talk about how they had to walk to school uphill both ways in the cold and the snow? You guys remember your parents saying that to you? They were from Illinois, okay? If that's, they were from Illinois because that's where that happens. Everywhere is uphill and it's snowing always. The sun disappears and it's freezing. So I know, I know what kind of long johns you need to wear underneath uh, your pants. They need to be some sort of wool blend, perhaps a, a thick fleece that's brushed on the inside to create the space for warmth to be trapped in. You need to have some sort of insulated shoe that has, you know, safe for the, um, from the rain and the snow. It's got to be Gore-Tex or something. You need to have a coat that's really thick. And let me tell you, geese down is important. I've never been more thankful for Canadian geese in my entire life. I didn't know that I was supposed to be thankful, but I am thankful. God knew what he was doing when he insulated those birds. And I am thankful that they donate uh, free of charge uh, their, their, uh, all of their feathers to humans, right? That's, that's how it is, right? When we, yeah, that, let's just, I don't want to know any different. They're just, they're just gracious and they give that to us, right? Wow. But there's something, I think, about this idea of being competent. I think every single one of us desires to be self-sufficient, independent, to be able to do things on our own. We don't want people to help us. We we don't want to, you know, be, oh, the, the word, I tell you what, if there is a word that I do not like applied to me, it's the word needy. Anyone else love it when you're like, oh, you're so needy. Like, oh, thank you so much. I was working hard at that. No, we don't want to be needy. Oh my goodness. One time my wife called me needy. Yeah, she needy not do that ever again. I did not handle it well. I'm not gonna lie. I didn't handle it well, okay? I didn't handle it well. And she was right, but still it just, just struck at the core of who I am because I have this internal longing, yearning need to be not needy. 
It starts as a kid because our parents are desperately trying to get us to become competent at sleeping, right? right? You, the, the baby comes home and you're like, please sleep for more than 30 minutes at a time. Become competent at sleeping, right? And then it's, I don't know what you're communicating to me. Learn how to talk. More. Done. You're just waving your arms. Please learn how to communicate. And then I need you to learn how to go to the bathroom on your own and not in your pants. Right? I'm tired of buying diapers and I'm tired of doing laundry. See, our parents train us to become independent, to become self-sufficient. And they are praying every day that we would. Right? This is kind of the way that our culture is shaped. We desire to become these people who are competent adults, right? This is our hope. This is our goal. And even, even when we don't become experts, because we, even when we don't become competent at things, we just, we like to think that we are. We, we like to imagine that we're experts. Right? How many times in the last couple years uh, have you used the phrase, oh, no, I did some research on that? Yeah? Yeah, this is what we do, right? We, we deceive ourselves into thinking we're experts. We got any doctors in here? Any doctors? Have you ever had a patient come to you and say, hey, I know that you, you know, went to four years of college, got your undergrad, and you're obviously at the top of your class because you got into med school and you spent four years in med school and three years in residency, and you've devoted your life to the study of the human body and helping people get healthy. And yet, I read a couple articles. They weren't peer-reviewed, but I read a couple articles. So let me tell you how to do your job. Doctors, you love that, don't you? Yeah, yeah. But for some reason, in our humanity, we have the audacity to do that. We have the audacity to go up to an expert and say, yeah, I did a little research. Let me tell you my opinion. And, and I tell you what, anyone that has patience with that, bless you. That is incredible. It's hard to have patience with that, but there's just something about us, right? We just have that longing, that yearning, that desire. And then even if we know we don't know what we're talking about. We want people to think we do, right? We want people to think that we know what we're talking about because we don't want someone telling us what to do. We don't want someone showing us how to do it. Like, we know, I know, get off me. I know how to do it. Leave me alone. One time um, when I was in high school, my dad had, he was trying to help me through something that he had just cursed me with. I, they named me Brady, which I'm sure all of you know Greek. That means slow. And here's the thing, it's fine to name your kid Brady if he turns out to be fast, but if he turns out to be slow, then he's going to think that that was something spoken over of him as, as a child that you did to him. And that's me. I'm not fast. And my name is not fast. It's slow, right? And by, by the way, no one can ever remember Brady. When they tell you you go to Starbucks or wherever and you get your name, it's Brandy every time or Brad or Brody. It's like, come on, didn't you watch the Brady Bunch? This is a, a famous name, use it correctly. But it means slow and I'm slow and so my dad was helping me out. So he got me a, uh, a punching bag, one of those speed bags. You know, the, the one that when you're watching the boxing movies they're doing this to it, you know, it's just going back and forth like that. And because he wanted to help me with my hand-eye coordination and my speed uh, so that I could, you know, be competent in athletics. And I was really thankful. And so I worked hard every day, you know, just punching it over and over, over and over, over and over, over and over. And then one time I went downstairs to where the punching bag was with my sister and my dad. And um, I, I don't remember why she came down. I wanted to show her, who knows, show off to my older sister. I don't know. But she was like, let me do it. Let me do it. Let me do it. And so she went to punch it. And I said, oh, oh, oh hold up, Courtney. Um, if you, and when I, 
as soon as I said that, she said, I know how to do it. And she reared back to punch it, but she came down from the top and just jacked her knuckles right on the thick, solid wood piece that was holding up the punchy bag and just skinned her knuckles. And I, as a just godly, godly high schooler, fell to the ground and laughed. (laughs) But the thing is, is that's me. I don't want people telling me what to do. I don't want people thinking, I don't know what I'm talking about, that I don't know what I'm doing. I want everyone to think and believe that I'm good to go, that I'm an expert, that I am competent. It's just something in the core of who we are. I'm guessing each and every single one of us can relate to some extent if we're not deceiving ourselves. Now, before we go any further, we need to just understand that that's not a bad thing. Like becoming independent, becoming self-sufficient, becoming a competent adult, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's good to learn how to live life without needing people to help you with every single thing. It's good. But what I want to ask, what I want to question is what if it's a catch-22? What if while being a good thing, it's also the thing keeping us from living life in the way God has designed us to live in relationship to him. What if it's the very thing, our strengths, our expertise, our competencies, what if those are the very things keeping us from relating to him in the way that he longs for us to approach him? I'm gonna pray for us because we believe that the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us to truth. And I'm just gonna ask him that he would do that. God, thank you for this time this morning. I pray that as we open your scriptures that you have given to us, we ask that your spirit would lead us to the truth. God, I pray that you would protect us from my foolishness and that you would encounter us in a powerful way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we are going to be in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter one. If you have a Bible, if you've got a smart device, if you want to look on, I'm, I promise to read it the best that I can. But if you want to follow along, Genesis chapter one, if you've got one of the Mosaic Bibles, that's going to be on page one of the Bible, uh, but it's not printed on there. Page one isn't printed. So it's just to the right of XIV, which we all know what that is, right? It's 14. We all know. We're all competent in Roman numerals. Do we still teach that in school, Roman numerals? That's important. We need that because we need to know what Super Bowl is next. So we, let's, let's keep doing that in school. Genesis chapter one. Some of you probably have this first verse memorized. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now it goes on to describe what now the state of the universe is. And it says this, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, the picture that this verse paints is incredible. Let me tell you, we could spend weeks on this verse alone. It is unbelievable. God is just brilliant. And the scriptures blow my mind. I love it. I love it. 
there's a couple of Hebrew words that we're going to look at. They're going to be helpful. But what we have in verse two is this environment that is completely anti-life. There are three obstacles that prevent life from existing in the universe as it was at this moment. The first one is that it's dark. There's only darkness. All there is is darkness. Have you ever been in a room that is completely and utterly dark? No light at all, just dark. Maybe we have some cavers, some spelunkers that have been in a cave and you have um, traveled, you know, to the depths of this cave and there's just no light. So you turn off your flashlight and it's just, the darkness is just thick. Can you imagine if that was the entire world, the entire universe, just dark? Now, some of us haven't been blessed with the gift of sight and, and, and function incredibly well. I'm, so, I'm amazed. I'm amazed. So maybe, perhaps, life could still exist. But if you think about a world without light, you have to think about a world without plants, right? Because of photosynthesis, right? And I don't know what photosynthesis is, but I know it's something having to do with plants and light and mitochondria and cells. And it's just stuff that I learned in biology. Just a bunch of words, right? I'm an expert. I know what I'm talking about. But without light, plants can't exist. And we all know what that means. Without plants, who else can't exist? Vegans. Yes. You can't have vegans. And if you can't have vegans, you can't have juice bars and tofu. No way, that's not what it is. It's if there's no plants, there's no herbivores. If there's no herbivores, there's no carnivores. So no one can exist, right? Without light, life cannot exist. And that's all that would have needed to be said. But the picture God wanted to paint was a picture that's even more desperate than that. That, that even, it's, it's more difficult. It's a more dire scenario. So it's not just that there was darkness, there was also this thing called the deep. Now in English, the deep, it doesn't carry with it the weight of the fear that should be brought when you see this. This is the Hebrew word tahom. So if you want to learn some Hebrew, tahom. Can you guys say tahom? Tahom, that's great. That's fantastic. To home. What to home is, is to home is the deep, dark, chaotic abyss. It's the waters that, that no life can exist. It's the anti-life waters. It's, it's basically what should conjure up in your heart and your mind is my greatest fear, which is to be alone in the ocean at night, floating. And, and if you are logic and rational, you also have that fear. If you don't have that fear, I need you to talk to someone that can help you get that fear because it's, it's, it's a real fear and it should exist in all of us. Th- that's the Tahome, right? The deep, dark, chaotic ocean, it's gonna kill you waters. So no light and Tahome. And then on top of that, it says the land was without form and void. It was lifeless. It was uninhabitable. It's the Hebrew phrase, tohu vavohu. And it means that there is no way that life can exist. The picture that you just have in your mind is dune, right? Just, just, just sand, as far as the eye can see, lifeless sand, uninhabitable sand, just a crazy heat. In verse two, what we have is a scenario where life cannot exist. It is absolutely and utterly impossible for any ounce of life, not only not to thrive, but even to exist. And what God does in day, days one, two, and three, he solves those problems. He solves the anti-life equation, if you're a DC fan. Day one, he creates what? 
light. Yeah, day one, he creates light. He solves a darkness problem. Day two, he takes the home and he separates it and creates a space where life can actually exist. And then on day three, he brings the land up so that living things, land creatures can exist. And he creates plants, food for uh, the animals. What God does in days one, two, and three is he solves the problem of Genesis chapter two and creates a space where life can now exist. Days four, five, and six, he fills the land, he fills the waters, and he fills the skies with all kinds of animals. And the pinnacle of his creation is humankind, us. He creates us in his image. Now in Genesis chapter two, he, he unpacks this a little bit. And it says this in Genesis chapter two, uh, verse seven, it says this, then the Lord formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. God formed the first human, breathed his breath into his nostrils, and then the human being became a living creature. Now, the danger for those of us who exist in the American Western modern world is to have the idea that what scripture teaches is that God takes care of the problems that prevent life and creates an environment where life can now exist, forms humans, and then presses the start button on them and says, all right, go for it. You don't need me any longer. It's easy for us in our mindsets to think that's the way that scripture talks about it. That God created what we needed and now we just go and do and that we don't need God anymore. But there are two hugely important things that demonstrate for us in the text that this is not the case. The first thing is the Hebrew word ruach. Ruach. If you say that, you have to kind of have a little, little nasty stuff in your throat to really, really do it correctly. But let me just tell you what ruach is. In fact, I'm going to show you. Everyone take your hand, right or left, it doesn't matter. Take your hand, put it right in front of your mouth. Just maybe a half an inch in front and say, hello. 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 Did you feel that? Not the slobber that came out, but, but the, the other thing that came out, hello, that's ruach. When you, what I just breathed in, that's ruach. What I breathed out, that's Ruach. When you go in the woods and you see the trees and the leaves are moving on the trees, the thing that is moving the trees that you can't see, that's ruach. And ruach is also the word that's used for the spirit of God. So in Genesis chapter one, verse two, that last tagline sentence, it says, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's the ruach of God. And this word is this incredibly beautiful and powerful picture that demonstrates that God is the one who not only gives life, but sustains and animates life. The way that we would talk about breathing in oxygen and getting into our lungs and then getting into our bloodstream and making our brain synapses fire. That's the way that the Hebrews would have thought about God's continual empowering and life-giving nature inside of them. That every single human being is constantly and continually dependent upon God for every breath. It's God's ruach that fills us, gives us life, animates us, and sustains us. We need God. And there's this beautiful picture 
and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And, and I love this. So before the waters were called, called to home, and that's that deep, dark, anti-life waters, right? But when the spirit of God is hovering over them, the word is now hamayim, which is useful, drinkable waters. And what I love is that when God's spirit is present in the midst of things that cannot sustain life, they become tools of a life-giving nature in his hands. It's just beautiful what God does with every sentence in the scriptures. But the picture that we should have in Genesis chapter one, two, and throughout is that we desperately and deeply need God every hour, every minute, every moment to sustain life. Because every single one of us, every couple seconds needs another breath of air. Now you see this play out in a really cool way in the life of Moses. You guys remember Moses? Moses was the one who looked a lot like Charlton Heston, Moses. Moses, he was born, uh, and then it, it was really dangerous, so his mom sent him in the Nile in a basket. Pharaoh's daughter picked him up and, and then raised him. And he was raised, and at some point in his life, when, when uh, Stephen tells us when he's given his, his last sermon, he says that Moses re- believed that he was the deliverer of Israel. He was the one who was going to deliver the people out of the slavery they lived in in Egypt. And so he, in his own wisdom, in his own might, in his own power, tried to deliver the people. And it didn't go very well. In fact, it landed him in exile. And for 40 years, he was living in exile. I imagine replaying what he tried to do, what he attempted to do, what he could not do. The thing that he thought he was supposed to do, that thing that he thought he was called to do, but obviously not because he was completely and utterly incapable of doing that thing. Imagine it replayed in his mind over and over and over. And then one day up on a mountain, he sees a burning bush, but the bush is not consumed. And he's thinking, I need to see this thing that is happening. That's impressive. And he goes up and lo and behold, it's God. It's God. And God says to Moses, I want you to go be the deliverer of my people. And Moses is like, hold up. I tried that. It didn't work real well. And don't you remember 40 years ago? It was awful. That's why I'm here out in the middle of nowhere with sheep. Like what in the world? God says, no, no, no. I'm calling you to go do this. And then Moses gives a bunch of different excuses, all centered around himself. God, who am I? I don't have what it takes. I'm not eloquent of speech. God, I can't do it. No one's going to believe me. And I love what God says to him. The very first thing God says is not, no, 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 you're going to be fine. No, no, you're, you're, you're talented. No, you can talk well. No, no, you're good to go. God says, ah, oh, I will be with you. God's response to Moses' focus on his inadequacies is not that, no, you're adequate. It's, no, I will be with you. I will be with you. That's what you need. You need me. And then we see over the next a few pages of scripture, probably the next few months, maybe even a couple of years, we see this relationship develop between Moses and God, this deeply intimate, this connected relationship between God and Moses. Whenever Moses is in need, he cries out to God. They're at the Red Sea. They're trapped. They don't know what to do. He cries out to God. God parts the Red Sea. They've been wandering in the wilderness or they're dying of thirst and the water that's there is undrinkable and he cries out to God and God provides. Later, they're, they're hungry, they're starving and Moses cries out to God and he provides food. 
And what you see is this incredibly intimate relationship between God and Moses. Moses connected to God and God's power flowing in him and through him. And we get to Mount Sinai, the people of Israel at Mount Sinai with Moses. And God lays out a wedding covenant. And says, I want to enter into a wedding covenant with you as a people. I want to be your God and you will be my people and we will be connected. And he lays out the terms and it's the 10 commandments. He lays out the terms and they say, yes, we will do all the things that you've said. We will. We want to enter into this covenant with you. And they enter into this covenant with God and not 40 days later, they're cheating on God with other gods. Right? They take all their gold They put it into a fire. They make a golden calf and they start worshiping the golden calf. And one of my favorite things said in all of scriptures, when Moses asked Aaron what he was thinking, Aaron's like, I don't know. I put some gold in a fire and out came a calf. I don't know how it happened. I did not form it. You know, I mean, it's like, come on, Aaron. You got to have a better excuse than that. But this is what the people of God did. They, 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 they've just been delivered from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt by the power and the mighty hand of God. They, they, they walked through the Red Sea because God held back the Red Sea. God provided water. God provided food. God is supernaturally taking care of every single one of their needs. They enter into this wedding covenant and not 40 days later, they have cheated on God. And you see just the anguish in the heart of God, the hurt that he allows himself to experience when his people reject him. And he wells up with anger. And he says, here's the deal. I can't can't do this anymore with y'all because I'm holy, I'm righteous. And if I'm in your midst and you continue to sin against me, it's not gonna go well for you. He says, Moses, here's what I'm gonna do for you guys. I told you about the promised land. I told you I'd provide the promised land. I told you it was a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to provide for you the promised land. In fact, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to take an angel. I'm going to send him before you. And he's going to get the promised land ready for you. He's going to get rid of all of the people that are in it that are going to try and kill you. He'll take care of it. You don't need to do anything. You can enter into the promised land. You will have everything your heart desires, everything that you need. You'll have food, you'll have water, you'll have honey. You'll have all the things that you need in this land, places to live in. But I'm not gonna go with you. Because if I go with you, knowing the way that you are, I might kill you along the way. And you see this choice that Moses is faced with. Either he gets everything he's wanted, everything he's been promised in this life without God, or he gets God and the danger that he may never get this. And what does Moses say? Moses says, God, if you don't go with us, we won't go. Because his life has taught him The last few months have really taught him that what he really needs, what he's really desperate for is God. That God is the one who's continually sustaining him, continually empowering him, continually leading him, continually guiding him. And that it's not that he lives by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That he needs God more than food, God more than water, God more than land, God more than homes. He needs God. He says, if you don't go, we won't go. And that sounds like a really neat thing that he did, but it's deeper than that because that choice cost Moses the promised land. That choice cost Moses the promised land. He didn't get to go. 
because the people were exactly as God said, rebellious and sinful. And so they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and that generation had to die off. And Moses didn't get a set foot in the promised land. But I guarantee you, if you ask him today, if he'd make that choice all over again, he'd say, absolutely, every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Absolutely, I got God and that is far better. That's what I needed. That's what I long for. That's what I yearn for is God himself, not the stuff. If we fast forward to the New Testament, we get the most incredible picture of God. We get Jesus. And the way that Jesus displays just the kindness and compassion and the love and the grace and the goodness and the truth of God is, it's mind-blowing. And one of the things that I love about looking at the life of Jesus as I read through the Gospels is to see the stories of how he responds and treats people who are desperate, who are completely and utterly desperate. There's this dad who has a son that's possessed by a demon. The demon's trying to kill his son. Whenever his son's walking by water, it throws him into the water to drown him. Whenever his son's walking by fire, it throws him into the fire to burn him alive. And so you can imagine this dad who's at the end of his rope. You know he's taking him to every doctor, every spiritual person, every teacher that he could possibly find to get his son better. And finally, he comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I've tried everything and no one can help me. Can you help my son? And Jesus says, can I, can I, all things are possible for the one who believes. And it's hard to really put yourself in the dad's shoes in this moment. But you know, in that instant, he realizes that the thing that is the difference between his son living and dying is something that is not present in him something that he does not have. It's something that he does not possess. And he knows in that moment, the thing that Jesus asked for, which was belief, which was faith, is missing. And I can't imagine his heart sinking in that moment. And so he cries out to Jesus and he says, I do believe, but I don't. Help my unbelief. I believe, but obviously not enough. I obviously don't have what it takes, Jesus, so help my unbelief. And Jesus healed his son. Even though the guy didn't have enough, even though the guy didn't have what it took, as he came to Jesus in desperation, Jesus delighted to heal his son. There's a parable Jesus tells to his disciples. He says, I want you to pray like this. I want you to pray in this way. I want you to pray and never lose heart. Night and day, I want you to pray. It's like this woman who needed justice. And so she went to this judge to get justice, but he was unrighteous. And so he was like, I, I'm not gonna give you justice. And so she continued to approach him day and night over and over and over and over. Give me justice. 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 Everywhere he turned, give me justice. Every time he'd had a free moment, give me justice. And so finally he got worn down by her insistent coming. He says, finally, okay, fine, I'll give you justice. And Jesus says, that's how I want you to approach me. Although I'm not like the unrighteous judge, I want you to keep coming to me day and night, clinging to me, desperate for me, crying out to me because I love 
to act on behalf of my people who are desperate for me. As Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to go change the world, to die for the sins of the world and be raised to new life, he's on his way and he's entering into Jericho. And as he and the band of people who are with him are are heading into Jericho, there's a a man who's blind named Bartimaeus sitting beside the road. And he hears the commotion. He asks, what's going on? And they say, hey, Jesus is on his way. And at that moment, Bartimaeus begins crying out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people who are with Jesus know he's doing something important. They know he's got more important things on his plate than to listen to this guy, than to stop and wait for this guy, than to even talk to this guy. So they tell him to be quiet. Hey, shh, hush, leave him alone. This guy's too important. Leave him alone. And that doesn't dissuade Bartimaeus. Instead, he says, all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. He says, what can I do for you? How can I help for you? Help you? How can I care for you? Because that's the heart of God for his people who are living in desperation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those people who are impoverished spiritually, who don't have what it takes spiritually. Blessed are those who have no righteousness, but they hunger for it. If you're in a position right now, if your circumstances in your life are such that you're at the end of your rope, you need to know that God loves it when you cry out to him in desperation. He loves to be there with you, to comfort you, to act on your behalf. And even though in the midst of it doesn't seem like it, it doesn't feel like it, he is there, he is with you. And I guarantee one day when you look back on that scenario that you're living in right now, you will notice God's powerful presence in your life. But here's the danger for many of us is many of us are not in that scenario. Many of us are not in that situation. Many of us are operating just fine on our own. I mean, how often do you wake up and think, oh goodness, God, if you don't help me, I can't get out of my bed. God, if you don't save me from this shower, it will consume me and I won't make it. God, if you don't provide a meal for me this morning, I'm not going to eat. Please, God, materialize food in the refrigerator. I got up this morning. I woke up just fine. Got out of bed. Didn't break a toe. Took a shower. I was fine. I ate some food that I'd already purchased and already put in the refrigerator. See, what can happen for most of us is we have have insulated ourselves from the felt need of dependency on God. Because we work real hard. We're pretty competent. Some of us are experts. We make enough money and we can make ends meet. And while that's not a bad thing, it can also be the very thing that keeps us from our dependence on God. But it's not that we're not dependent. It's that we don't realize it. Jesus writes to a church in the book of Revelation. uh, It's the church of Laodicea. And it's this church of followers of Jesus, of people who are Christians. And yet he says this to this church. He says, and the angel of the church in Laodicea to write this, 
the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And he says to them, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And if you wonder where you fit in this category, this next sentence lets us know. He says, for you say, I am rich. I've prospered and I need nothing. If that is not an indictment against the American Christian church, I'm rich. I have lots of talented people. We have all the resources that we need. In fact, we give out resources to other people. People come to us to learn. People come to us to see how to do church. People come to us because we know what we're doing, because we are competent, because we are experts. I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. And he says this, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's not that we need to become desperate for God. We already are desperate for God. We don't need to change our circumstances. It's the reality that we live in. We need God. That's the teaching of the scriptures all throughout. Every breath that we take is a gift from God. If he doesn't give us that gift, we die. If he doesn't give us the wisdom, we don't know what to do. If he doesn't empower us, we can do nothing of eternal weight or significance. Without God's spirit, we cannot be effective witnesses for the kingdom, for Jesus. It's not that we need to become desperate. Men and women, we are desperate. We just don't know it. Paul gives us a gift. He says, here's the deal. I don't boast in my strengths anymore. He says, I boast in my weaknesses because they remind me of my dependence upon God. They remind me of who I need. They remind me to cry out in desperation. So I'll boast in my weaknesses. May that be true of us, Mosaic Church. May that be true of us, not that we are gifted and talented and experts, but that we are aware painfully aware of our desperate need for God to do what only God can do in our midst and outside of our doors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we need you. God, we are needy and you love it. Thank you that you love to help the needy, the downcast, the marginalized, the hurting, the empty, the people who aren't wise, who aren't talented, who aren't strong. Thank you that you love to help your children when we cry out to you. Help us to realize that that is what we are. That is who we are, that we need you. Remind us of our weaknesses, of our dependence, and help us to cry out to you knowing that you love to answer those prayers. We need you. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. We're gonna do something a little bit different. What I want you to do is I want you just to just sit there as comfortably as you can. And I want you just to take in a deep breath and then let it out. 
And if it's helpful, close your eyes and just take it another long, slow, deep breath and let it out. And as you breathe in, just imagine the Ruach of God filling your lungs. As you breathe in, imagine the Ruach of God filling your lungs and infiltrating every area of your body. As you breathe in, imagine the Ruach of God giving you life, sustaining your movement, causing your brain synapses to fire. As you breathe in and out, remember the name of God that he gave to Moses, Yahweh. That is the sound of breathing in and breathing out. And every time you breathe, just allow God's name to be on your lips and on your heart and on your mind. There's a prayer that Christians have been praying for centuries called our breath prayer. And it comes from Bartimaeus and his cry to Jesus. It's a prayer that has two parts. One you say as you breathe in and one you say as you breathe out. As you breathe in, you say, Lord Jesus, Son of God, and as you breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's just a way for Christians to begin to practice what Paul says, praying without ceasing, in a way that reminds us of our utter desperation without God. That without God, we're sinners. Without God, we're helpless but with God, we're forgiven, free, adopted, chosen. And just take a second and breathe in, Lord Jesus, Son of God, breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And as we go, may your breath be a reminder of your constant, continual dependence upon our good, loving Father who loves to be near and to help his children who are in need. God, we ask that this would be true of us. Be near to us as we go. Be our breath. And help us to remember our need for you, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners.